lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. Hey, welcome to another interesting episode of Africa State of Mind. On this very special episode, we turn our focus onto Rwanda. This year marks the 25th commemoration of a tragic event in Africa's history, the Rwandan Genocide. The 7th of April is a day dedicated to the memory of some 500,000 to 1 million Rwandese who were butchered mercilessly during the genocide of 1994. Although it is not a proud moment in our history, we should never forget so that we never repeat the same mistake again. We speak to a survivor of the genocide, Prince Toto Theogeni Niwenshuti. When the war started, that was something new for us. We had only seen soldiers and guns and tanks on, on, on the movies. Former Mauritian president Amina Gurib Fakim shared her thoughts and called for African unity. She wants to see more Africans being proud of who they are. We need to inculcate this notion of uh, proud to be African. Mm. Not just uh, Rwandan, uh, South African or Senegalese or whatever. Proud to be African. Mimi Kalinda, the group CEO and co-founder of Communications Group, who's originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where her dad is from, her mom is Rwandese, and she's raised in South Africa and other parts of Africa and the world. She shared her experience about having to be nervous about family members that were left in Rwanda during the genocide. She also touched on the importance of Africans owning their own narrative. They've built a country based on a story yeah. that was told. Exactly. Of hope, of the capabilities of the people who've gone back to build the country, mm-hmm. etc. They told a story, and through the story, they've been able to gather the resources, support, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. That's the power of a story. Sure. You know, whereas on the flip side mm-hmm. in South Africa, we've faced some challenges, and I think that the story of South Africa could actually be told a lot better. Before we get into the episode, let me remind you to review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It makes it easier for other people to find us as well. You can also also join the Africa State of Mind family by subscribing and joining us either on live podcasts or on iTunes. Also remember to join the Facebook group Africa State of Mind or follow us on Twitter Africa State Mind. Right now though, let's get into this special episode. We start with Prince Toto Theogeni Nguyenshuti sharing his harrowing life story of how he survived this tragic episode in Africa's history as a teenager. really difficult. I don't know where to start. So much were happening and uh, of course because I was a child, uh, the years before 90, there was so much happening, there's so uh, much going on. But uh, as a kid, I think we were protected, we were shielded by our parents. We didn't know the details. Uh, But I remember in 90 when the war started, that was something new for us. We had only seen soldiers and guns and tanks on, on, on the movies in television. And for the first time, we saw in our village, on the streets, uh, many cars, many soldiers going to, to, to the north, and we were told there is a war. And from that mm-hmm. moment on, 
for the next four years, as you know, uh, Rwanda will be on war between the then what was the rebel movement, RPF, and the yes. government soldiers. Mm-hmm. But uh, at, I was, at the background of that war, then the propaganda started, then the, the hatred um, uh, was kind of what was being fed to the people, um, the, the radio, the newspapers. The, even me, I was in high school then um, in Ikigali. You could feel, you could sense something was going on, even though we didn't know what it was. But there was so much tension, mm. so much uh, street fighting between the different militias or the political parties had different uh, young uh, youth uh, militias who used to fight in the streets and they would run to us uh, at our schools. So those were the first kind of uh, incidents, violent incidents that um, made us uh, think there is something going on. Even for us as kids, we knew something bad is going to happen. And in '94, mm-hmm. in April '94, uh, I was—we were on holidays. I was at home with my family, and uh, on the evening of the sixth, uh, the plane—something exploded. We were watching soccer, and we all ran to the back of the door to watch what was going on. We saw something burning and falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. Immediately, uh, we. We had gunshots and grenades. We had been used to that kind of uh, noise and grenades and bombs for the last three or four years, but this was really different. People started shouting and screaming, and, and, and the noise grew louder and louder as it came close to our house. We stayed, we lived just 15, 20 minutes from the international airport, and the international airport is also was next to the uh, military camp, and so <laughs> we were not really we were not far from uh, from from the I would say the heart of the where the fire started, where the problem started. Because the next morning mm-hmm. we saw people fleeing, our neighbors fleeing, passing our house, screaming that they they're coming to kill us, they are killing us. We are. We packed our belongings. Our father told us, pack your stuff. We have to go. We have to leave the house. The soldiers are coming. They're shooting people. The militia are killing people. And that's, that's, that's the, like the first memory of that evening, sure. that uh, beginning of the genocide. And um, you, were, you were about how old at that particular time? In '90, when the war started, I was 13, 13, and in, in April 1994, I was 17 years old. So I was a grown-up teenager. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Jenny, I can't even. I mean, I just even as you're speaking, I just really thank you for just being brave and really just telling your story because. You know, I imagine it's one thing to tell a story; it's another thing to to have lived the story. You know, so um, it is really quite uh, intense. You know, you know, I, I there's somebody who I spoke to um, who 
who I'd interviewed prior to this, um, Ashish Sakhar, mm. and I think his family was in Rwanda, and he literally says he remembers, you know, one minute just being, you know, them. I think that they perhaps were they were protected. Mm. They were almost in the hotels, um, mm. and so he just remembers that they were having, you know the one holiday he was there, they were having fries and everything seemed mm. normal. And then the next mm. thing, it almost just changed within a flash. Yeah. You know, he had gone to Rwanda yeah. to visit his family. And it's almost that how fast the change happened. He, you know, mm. he remembers his last meal having been having fries in the actual hotel um, that, that mm. became famously known as Hotel Rwanda. What, for you, this is, yeah. a, is a strange question perhaps, but... But for you, what do you remember your last meal being just before everything really went intense? Because as much as there was a lot going on in Rwanda before, as you so beautifully painted and explained, uh, people mm. were living lives, quote-unquote, as normally as possible. It was only in April yeah. 94 that it really changed. So for you, what was, what, what was your day-to-day, you know, as a 17-year-old? Mm. What was the last meal you remember having, your last memories of your mm. family home? Yeah. Yeah, that what 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 that person told you is very very true, and it happened to to many of us, all of us Rwandans. You find yourself the same place where you were dancing and singing and sharing the meal. The next day, it's completely different. It's the place of crying and hiding and 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 the blood. Um, for me, that same evening, as I had just mentioned, we were watching soccer. Um, we were among friends, uh, brothers, sisters, and parents, and uh, cheering. It was the African Cup, if I recall well. Mm. That was a very happy moment for us. Um, but mm. I think I'll go far. I, I wouldn't really pick uh, April 94 to share my best memory, um, because even though we're trying to watch soccer to live life as normal, but it was not normal. It hadn't been normal for the last uh, four, three, four years. There were tensions, mm-hmm. there was something going on, and some people being accused of being uh, cockroaches and spies, and uh, uh, some politicians, uh, whether who to 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 other, like there were like tensions among all the people. And so, my mm-hmm. best memory for me, the happiest will be. Uh, like um, in '90, uh, before the war started, <laughs> before we heard the first bullet, the first before I saw the first soldier going to war, that was when I remember uh, my mother buying me like uh, suitcases and giving me uh, having a meal to say me goodbye when I was I was going to high school. It was the first time I was going to leave home. <laughs> And we all had meal, and we danced and sang for me. And then they uh, they had me goodbye when I was leaving home for the first time to go to high school. And, and my mom told me, "I bless you. Work hard." Uh, mm. In Rwanda, we say uh, your mom, especially the mothers, they 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 hold their chest like their breasts, and they say, mm. She said many things, but I'm saying these few words because I know many people will remember them. Like, it means I'm blessing you. I hold my chest, my breast for you. Uh, that's a powerful memory for me of the time before things went bad. 
And now, uh, in terms of your family, because, um, you know, mm. as I was trying to understand more about your story, uh, just the, the, the path, uh, there was a point in your story as you were running away with your family that you got mm. to a crossroads and there was an important mm. decision that, that you and the group of people that you were with had to make uh, as yeah. you were running through the night. Could you please explain that story to us? Yeah, um, this was... Uh, this was a couple of months into the genocide, so we survived the first massacre. When we ran in the morning with my family, we, we went right into the hospital, the Karaez Ndera Mental Hospital. We spent there about 10 days, and uh, my father was killed in that hospital, and many other people from, from, from our community and many neighbors died. We will be commemorating them uh, on the 11th of April. And mm-hmm. when we when we survived the hospital, we went hiding in the bushes, in the forest, and running. So there is one point where we, we reached to a crossroads, and we didn't know which one, which way to go, because we're scared. If we go left, we will be killed. If we go right, we might be killed. So what do we do? And so we started arguing among ourselves. But when I noticed that we didn't, we were not making a decision and we were wasting time, and the time was so precious, the militia might come and kill us in that crossroad. So I called a young girl. She was like between seven, nine years old, and she, she she seemed very innocent, very free. She didn't know what was going on. And I said, okay, uh, Ikeza, which way do you want to go? And immediately she pointed one of the 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 roads and she pointed the direction. And without thinking, we ran to that direction. But few people who came after us, they went the opposite direction. And late, late in the middle of the night when we were resting, because we used to rest a little bit before we could continue. Everyone who went to the opposite side were killed. Few people who survived Mm. came running back to us in the middle of the night, bleeding and screaming. And the, the people started saying, thank you, you saved us because you asked the little girl but for me, I was grateful, and I thank the little girl because if it wasn't for her, maybe we could have taken the opposite direction and we could have been killed, all of us. Mm. And that, for me, is one of many uh, stories, I think, among ourselves as survivors, among people, the common people, we survived because many people really saved us by hiding us or by helping us on the way. Or among ourselves as survivors, some people were encouraged to protect us or to give us directions. That's how we survived. Okay. And now, um, sorry, this story is just, you know, it's no matter how many... Um, Story that I hear about people who survived genocide. Yeah. 
it's it's still it's every single time it it still hits in a different kind of way you know i think sometimes we forget we just think about a mass of people and we forget the individual mm-hmm. story so i keep saying thank you but i'm really just grateful for you sharing your story um with us um mm-hmm. now dear jenny i know that you are very passionate about healing um through dance mm-hmm. and movement um and that's what you've been focusing on uh you know yeah. i don't know if it's if it's uh, accurate to say that uh, you know a nation can go through ptsd we know that if people go to mm-hmm. war as individuals you know or if you have mm-hmm. a traumatic experience you can suffer ptsd but i would imagine mm-hmm. that with everything that rwanda went through as a whole you know the nation mm-hmm possibly went through that kind of phase. I'm not a psychologist, but I, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So how has mm-hmm. dance and movement healed uh, people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you are completely right. Um, it, it might not be PTSD, but it's definitely a kind of ambient trauma, some kind of effect that is caused by violence. And, and if you ask me, it's not just me, there are many scholars, psychologists from Rwanda, from abroad, who acknowledge that uh, trauma, uh, histories of violence, histories of trauma, they are, when they are not addressed properly, they become the sources of other conflict, other violence. And I believe behind the hatred, behind economic or political reasons, Genocide in Rwanda also happened also because of a psychological wound and trauma for for many years, for centuries of colonization and then dictatorship and then discrimination and propaganda. So after genocide, the stories I'm telling you, my own stories, it took me a long time to share these stories. And there are many survivors, even in Rwanda up to now, who still can't really share everything they lived through. You, as a journalist, you are aware of the stories of rape and the difficulty, for mm-hmm. example. Where do you start sharing, telling people how you were raped and abused? Mm-hmm. That's just one example. So when I went to school after genocide, I noticed that young people of my age, they were using other self-destructive ways like drinking and and and, and drugs or anger. Uh, families, those affected and those which were not affected were being like disintegrating. We were already destroyed, but there was also another kind of uh, effect that comes after a conflict, after violence, when people are trying to rebuild themselves. Then there is a, that's when we started facing our stories and what in the memories of what we went through. And that's when people started breaking down and, 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 and there, were, there were not enough counselors, not enough psychologists. Many were killed, by the way. And, and there were, even those who were trained and international people who came to help, for me, I could see that the Western or the usual, the classic way of dealing with trauma were not enough. Because in a, in a normal setting, a therapy, psychological setting, you sit one-on-one and you, you, you share, you talk, you use conversation, and the psychologist tries to help you. But how do you start helping someone who can't even put words, put in words what he or she lived through? 
the, the impossibility or the, the, the unspeakability of genocide makes it so difficult that there are no words, there is no speech. And that's where, for me, dance becomes powerful. Movement becomes powerful yeah. because you don't need words, you don't need to express. You just use your body, you use your movement to help your body make sense, make meaning of what you're going to do. And that's how I started using dance for myself, for my family, my young brothers and sisters who survived. And I created a group of dance at school. Many young people started joining them. And this led them slowly by slowly taking the courage to even starting sharing the story. So it might not be enough on its own, but can be a starting point to getting people to to find a way to trust and then slowly start sharing your own story. And then from there, we can see how to address the, the trauma and the pain, the suffering that comes out of it. Now, um, Fiojeni, when you think of the, you know, when you think of days that are coming up, um, so we, you know, obviously in April, everybody yeah. uh, Rwanda's 25th anniversary um, from the genocide. May um, is uh, Africa Day, and in essence, it's Africa Month. And obviously, your president, you know, was the former chairperson of the AU, and is one of yeah. the presidents who's really shown that you can make a change in a country. When you yeah. think of Africa Day, do you think of it as being important? What are your thoughts around it? Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's very, very, very important. I wish we can. Um, I don't know if all African countries celebrate it. I wish we we all <laughs> could celebrate Africa Day much more. Um, I'm proud because Rwanda has done so much progress, as you said at the beginning of the uh, of this conversation. You wouldn't believe, having known Rwanda in 94 and what it is now, it's a huge, huge difference, a positive difference. Uh, you agree, we all agree, many people agree. So if we can learn from each other, for instance, the, the example of Rwanda in terms of economic growth, human rights, women, women rights, education, health sectors, technology, uh, there's so much we can learn from from Ghana, from South Africa. From I, I think celebrating African Day should be a day where we go together, say let's let's learn from each other, let's let, let's grow together. It's time that we face forward for the next 25 years. Why can't we have a vision when next 25 years, for example, at least every nation is on the level of Rwanda, for instance. I know we still have so much to do, but what if we, we create a kind of a vision, like the same way Rwanda has 2020 vision, South Africa has, I think, 2030 vision. Can we celebrate Africa Day by sitting together and create like 2020 African vision or 2050 African vision where we see our continent grow economically, we see freedom of expression grow, we see... Uh, Africa more connected. We don't have to travel to, to, to Europe to go to another African nation. <laughs> but we have airplanes and the trains and uh, and people can move around freely without fears of, I don't know, xenophobia or any other attacks. Yeah. So I think it's really time to, re, to revive African consciousness, even black consciousness, to 
to reimagine this continent moving forward. So I was talking to Theogeny while I was traveling Ghana and he was in South Africa at the time. When the genocide was taking place in Rwanda in 1994, South Africa was engrossed in holding its first democratic elections after the fall of apartheid and its first democratic president, the late Nelson Mandela, often spoke about how South Africa did not do enough to help Rwanda in its trying time. And South Africa's second democratic president, President Thabo Mbeki, also apologized. He's quoted as saying, because we were preoccupied with extracting ourselves from our own nightmare, we did not cry out as loudly as we should have against the enormous and heinous crimes being committed to the people of Rwanda. For that, we owe the people of Rwanda a sincere apology, which I now extend in all sincerity and humility. I spoke to the former president of Mauritius, Amin Gurib Fakim, about how these two episodes coincided in Africa and how they should be viewed. First of all, I think the, the tragedy of, of Rwanda is unacceptable. Mm. I mean, this is something that uh, absolutely we should never uh, see that happen because of uh, sheer, uh, you know, uh, I just can't even stop to think uh, that people can actually go and kill themselves because they belong to different ethnic groups. But I think uh, I think the underlying current under the force is much stronger than what we're discussing right now. And I think many people know that. South Africa has also had a very, very, uh, you know, very harsh history. We know the, 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 the problems and, of course, we know the challenges that most South Africans underwent during that apartheid uh, period. Again, something which, uh, you know, should never, again, be uh, the differences, our differences, should help make us stronger and not divide us. Mm. I think the main message that we have to get out of these two events, uh, the apartheid era and of course the genocide, is that our differences must be used as a force for good. Mm. Because we are all different on this continent, we all have different backgrounds, and we are a diversity of people, and through these shocks of ideas coming from our diverse backgrounds should be used to make us stronger. Mm. And there's no way that we should allow these to actually divide us. Having said this, uh, coming back to the way that Rwanda has pulled itself together, I think uh, we have to recognize the leadership of President Karame. Mm. He has been there at the time, he's still there. And we have, I recently went to Rwanda and I've been there before. And every time I go there, I'm just sheer impressed with the progress, the indicators. Uh, of this country, which is going up and up all the time. Mm. And uh, this is what Africa needs. Africa needs strong leadership with strong institutions. Sure. And uh, so we need to adhere to all the indicators, and I think we have adhered to, for example, zero corruption, safety, security, cleanliness, all the indicators which are working for, for the country. But I think more importantly, what he did, he managed to bring the people together through the Omugana project, where we worked towards a purpose. Uh, to help build communities. So mm. these are very strong messages coming out of Rwanda, which was all applied elsewhere, be it in Mauritius, South Africa, or anywhere else. We need to bring our people around our common flag. Mm. Sure. And this is, again, comes from a very early age. We need to inculcate this notion of, uh, you know, proud to be African. Mm. Not just uh, Rwandan, uh, South African, or Senegalese, or whatever. Proud to be African. 
Mm-hmm. We are 1.2 billion people, and one way we should be doing that again, this also emanates from what we're expecting to happen, for example, a continental free trade agreement, which is currently being discussed. And this is something that we need to adhere to. Mm-hmm. Let us try and develop Africa as one common market mm-hmm. where we can share, we can sell our goods, we can create wealth for our people. And now just talking about the the free trade agreement and the former chairperson of the African Union, um, President Kagame, what are your thoughts around the effectiveness of the African Union and the, the new direction that it's going in with the with the reform committee coming into play and so forth? What are your thoughts around the effectiveness of the AU? You know, AU was actually created with the way but I think uh, uh, what the way we're trying to reform the AU is good because uh, we need to actually... Uh, start looking at uh, at the budget, for example, of uh, the EU. And uh, I think some of the measures we have taken have been very good. And we have seen, for example, settlement of differences uh, between countries uh, being done peacefully, mm. uh, free dialogues with diplomacy, which is very, very good. And uh, we have seen, for example, this initiative of driving the content free trade agreement so that we need, we need two more countries, I think, towards five for it to become effective. Yes. So... If we are, because this is one way of re-looking at all this issue of tariffs and non-trade barrier tariffs and all the rest of it, which have prevented many African countries from accessing quality goods from across the country itself. Mm. So if we want to promote that, now look at the European Union. We know that there's over 40% intra-European trade. And if you look at Africa, it's less than than 20%. Mm. So why can't we have a strong intra-Africa trade? when there's so many goods. And also, have you tried moving across Africa? I it's so hard. It, yeah. It's very frustrating because I need to get visas mm. and the flights are not there. Connectivity is very poor. I mean, there is a need to drive these indicators out there so that we can increase mobility, we can improve mobility of people, and if you go by what the European has done, goods, people, and services, why can't Africa move? Africa is the land with 65% of arable land the world. Mm. And yet only I think ten percent of it is being used or something criminal crazy like this. Mm. So Africa should become the breadbasket of the world. Former President Amina Garib Fakim said some interesting things there indeed. And she's right. Africa should be the breadbasket of the world. Even The Economist magazine, which previously labeled Africa the hopeless continent in one of its covers, recently had a new cover. The new scramble for Africa, it says. This time, the winners could be Africans themselves. A full special episode with former President of Mauritius Amina Garib Fakim is coming out soon. So look out for that. On this episode, we also spoke to Mimi Kalinda, Group CEO and co-founder of Afri Communications Group. Her parents are both from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and has spent her time in South Africa and around the continent where she's been raised. She spoke to us about how she tried to celebrate South Africa's first democratic elections, but then also had to keep an eye on what was happening in Rwanda. I think about that often, actually. Mm. 1994, mm. uh, Rwandan family, I mean, I was raised by my mom mostly, so Rwandan family living in South Africa, experiencing on one end extreme joy and elation around the democratic elections in South Africa, 
On the other hand, we used to do things like community uh, activities and whatever to raise money to be able to send to Rwanda to mm. stop the genocide, right? Wow, yeah. So it was like a really interesting time. We're torn between the two. Like, do we laugh and are we happy because of what's happening in South Africa? Yes, we are. But mm. at the same time, like people are being slaughtered back home mm. um, and we feel helpless. And at mm. the time, I remember a bunch of my friends and even family you know, volunteer to go to Rwanda and fight with Kagame to go and stop sure. the genocide, yeah. you know. So it was a very interesting time. At the time, obviously, the uh, story around the genocide was... Uh, it was, it was traumatizing. You know, I think it was, it was, I think it was disrespectful of what was happening. I think it was, a lot of it was very inhumane. It was like, oh, look at these people. They're slaughtering themselves mm-hmm. amongst themselves, mm-hmm. you know, very kind of offhanded. Um, and so that was painful to watch. Um, and also not within a historical context because the story doesn't live by itself. It lives within a so context, powerful. right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, my family, for example, left uh, Rwanda in the 1959 genocide. So nobody really talks about, about that, that yeah, genocide so and yeah. how it's led to the second mm. genocide and this, you know, the, the dynamics of these two groups of people over, you know, a mm. couple of decades. Mm. Um, so and then you flip the coin and you look at it now and you think, wow, what an amazing communications exercise. I mean, obviously, the story of Rwanda, you go to Kigali now, you can't mm. recognize it. Yeah. I mean, it's changing at, at, a, at a pace that is <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. But the story that's followed, mm. um, and I have to say that I, I, I do admire the current administration in Rwanda for being able to rescue that story, mm. you know, to take ownership of it. I mean, mm. that's what we talk about when you say we're going to take ownership mm. of the story and we're going to tell it our way. Yeah. And that's exactly what they've done. Um, very clear on who they are, how they're molding their yeah. story. I mean, this is a country landlocked, which no doesn't actually have resources. the resources. Exactly. And that's you know? what people don't. And I'm always, I always say it's actually incredible what has been done it's when you incredible. consider all the factors, Absolutely. technically, nothing should be happening there. Technically, nothing should be happening in Rwanda. Yeah. But literally, and, and this is the power of communications, they've built a country based on a story yeah. that was told. Exactly. Of hope, of the capabilities of the people who've gone back to build the country, mm-hmm. etc. They told a story, and through the story, they've been able to gather the resources, support, etc., etc. Mm. That's the power of a story, sure. you know. Whereas on the flip side, mm. in South Africa, we face some challenges, and I think that the story of South Africa could actually be told a lot better. Definitely. Yeah. So I have two more questions. Mm. So because we've spoken about Rwanda, now when it comes to the DRC, uh, we interviewed Eddie Cardi uh, before, mm. and he he spoke um, he spoke so articulately in a way that I hadn't imagined, and I thought that I was so awake to what was going on mm. where that was concerned and he said to me you need to realize my parents left the drc when it was zaire and then they were when the name changed mm. that was an identity change it wasn't you know and when he described it like that i kind of thought that's literally like waking up and you have a different name mm. you know for you the what do you feel about the whole change the zaire versus uh, the drc change that Mm. that name change and the identity of the people Mm. so what i've always felt about the drc and i feel like that about a lot of our african countries when there's a regime change or you know some sort of um shift in administration 
we're really guilty of not being able to carry through history. So mm. whoever's going to come in power is literally going to go out of their way to completely obliterate sure. the history that's happened before them. You don't have to like it, but like preserve it, mm. right? So then now you move from Zaire to DRC and whoever comes in power says, you know, let's just forget about like not a single statue, not a single book, not a single anything like never about what happened mm. before me. And now let's move on to the next thing. And that is dangerous. That erases, there's a deliberate effort to erase identity, hmm. you know, the identity of an entire people. Hmm. And so how do you then build from there when you've had no foundation? Because essentially it's as if you had no foundation at all and you are being asked to build from scratch, hmm. you know, and, and that's sad. Sure. I mean, I sit with my that's father so now and I said to him, Right. You know, mm. one of the things that that um, has devastated me the most in my life is the fact that, um, you know, sorry to go back to Rwanda, but my grandmother, uh, who's the only living grandmother that I had, uh, you know, passed away without me having sat down with her and had a conversation about what did you learn? 1959 genocide. Walk me through what happened. How did you get into the DRC? What happened there in the refugee camps in which you lived? You know, and then you moved on to this and you were able to raise seven children on your own. What were the challenges that you faced, etc.? I never had that conversation with her. Whereas in the family, I was best placed to have that conversation with her mm. because I'm a communicator. That's what you do. Why yeah. did I not document this? Mm. So I sit now with my father and I say, you know, you worked with Mobutu, you were this, you were that, etc. Please, before anything happens to you, can we sit down and write mm. your story? Let's just document it, mm. even if it's not perfect, but let's keep it. Do Those not fall into this mm. trap of erasing history. You're not, you're doing us such a disservice. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Africa State of Mind. I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as we enjoy putting it together for you. And once again, a big shout out to all of the amazing people um, from around the amazing continent of Africa, uh, you know, who are really doing their part with regards to changing the narrative. Don't forget that you can interact with us um, on our Twitter handle at Africa State Mind. You can also join the Africa State of Mind group on Facebook. And please remember to rate us um, on iTunes. Let us know how it is that you think that we're doing. And if you have any ideas for any guests or people from your particular country uh, within the continent of Africa that are really changing the narrative, please be sure to share it with us. That's all we have for time for today. My name is Lika Sumba, Africa State of Mind. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at lifepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.